Welcome to the Southridge Church Podcast. This week's awesome message will start in a few seconds. But first, we want you to stay connected with us. You can find us on sanjose.cc or subscribe to the podcast. Well, we are glad that you're here. We're looking forward to just kicking off a new series. Thank you so much for being our guest. I'm excited about this new series for so many reasons. I love the book of James. It's a great book. It's a practical book that is meant to be practiced, put into practice. And so often we can see a book like the book of James, just five chapters, and think, what is this going to offer? And it's going to be great. I'm excited about it. But before we dive into the message, just a quick announcement. We're going to be launching Life Groups. Uh, Life Groups, if you're new, is our small group Bible studies. And we're going to be changing the way we do it here at Southridge. And uh, we're excited about kind of changing up the format a little bit. But I've, I've invited a group already, but I wanted to open it up to you if you would like to attend. Because sometimes what I failed to recognize is how the Holy Spirit may be talking to you. And it may be encouraging you to say, you know what, you can lead, co-lead, or be a part of helping with a life group. And if you would like to do so, you're invited to a, a fellowship and brainstorming dinner tonight at the church office at 5.30. If you don't know where that is, you can find myself or any of the leaders here. They will direct you to where the church office is. And you say, I, I, I don't know if I know if I want to lead, but this might be my next step uh, in spiritual growth, then we want to encourage you. You're welcome to join us. We're going to have a great time. We're going to have Giorgio's cater it, so it's going to be good food and fellowship, as well as the time as we kick off what life groups is going to look like. This in no way obligates you. This is just to kind of let you know with the format how we're looking to make a change there. But uh, the book of James, it is the abridged version of the book of Proverbs. It's the book of Proverbs for the New Testament. It's so practical. It's so uh, down to earth. It's something that you and I, we can take something away from. And oftentimes it's kind of on that bottom shelf that people would not see it as deep, even though it is. And so the book of Proverbs has so many truths that we can apply to our lives. And I'm looking forward to looking at this book, but it's a book that the writer, he really wants you to take action. As a matter of fact, in just five chapters, he'll have over 52 imperatives, uh, call to action where you need to take a step. And I love that because too often Christians can be slow to respond. We cannot take action when we should, or when we take action, it can be the wrong action. And so James, the writer here, is encouraging the church to take action on some things. Because how sad is it that there are people that name the name of Jesus, call themselves Christians, but if you were to look at their life and what they do, you wouldn't know if they were a Christian. There's nothing about them that gives evidence of the fact that they follow Jesus. You don't see love, you don't see joy, you don't see acts of service, you don't see mercy, you don't see gentleness, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And so James is writing to counteract that. He is writing a book that he wants you to put into practice right away. And so he gives 50 imperatives. There's a great old movie from the 80s, one that I kind of grew up watching called The Princess Bride. Now, please redeem the first service. Please. Has anybody seen this movie? Please raise your hands. Yes. Okay. I knew these were my peoples. All right. This is my people. Okay. The first service just stared at me. And I was like, that's, you you guys don't know what good movies are, right? The Princess Bride. Anyway, uh, Wesley, uh, just after they came out of the fire swamp, Count Rugen is there and the princess saves his life. But yet Wesley knows that even though she saved his life, his life is going to be 
they're going to try to kill him. But I love the line that he gives to Count Rugen. And Count Rugen says to him, uh, Wesley, we should get you back to your ship. And then, Count, and then Wesley says this, we're men of action. Lies do not become us. And I just love that line. I was like, that's such a good line. So good. But I love that we are men of action, that we take action. Because in the book of James, it says, faith without works is dead. Now, James is not meaning and he's not writing that our salvation is through works. That's not what he's saying. He is not saying that you can earn salvation. He's not saying you can work your way to heaven. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So there are many religions that will teach that you have to earn salvation, that you have to do something to get to heaven. But Christianity teaches it's already been done. It's the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But what James is emphasizing is that our faith needs to be lived out and we need to put into action. There's things that we need to do. So let's not be these Christians just sit back and we don't think we ever have to do anything. That's the problem I think so often even in our country is that we don't have people that are taking the right steps of action. We just kind of sit passively by and just kind of let things around us happen instead of taking actions. Same thing with Christians. You're watching the things that are happening in the world. You and I, we can at least pray. We can at least evangelize. There are things we can do. And that's what this writer is speaking to. Another thing that's interesting about this book is this book is not written to any specific audience. Uh, The Apostle Paul, he would write to the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, the church at Thessalonica, the church at Galatia, uh, Ephesus. He would write to a specific group. Or you would have other writers that would write to the Jews or to the Gentiles. He's just writing to Christians. So under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's writing. So this book is something you and I, we can apply to us. As well as the fact that the teaching of this book mirrors another teaching. It's really interesting. If you were to look at one of the most famous sermons in all the Bible, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you look at James and you put them both together, they're identical. It's the same teaching, which makes you wonder, then who's the author? Some people have alluded to the fact that maybe this James is the brother of John. You know, uh, there was always Peter, James, and John who would follow Jesus. It's not that James. He was already martyred by this time. You say, well, maybe it was James, the son of Alphaeus. No, it's not him. And then there was another James who was a disciple. And they said, James, the father of Judas. And it's funny what scripture says, but not that Judas. It's really interesting. It says, yeah, his son was Judas, but not the Judas you're thinking of. Not the famous Judas for what he did wrong. It's not that one. Then there's the fourth James, and that is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem. That's who they believe wrote the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus. And how he knew was he had followed his brother. And he wasn't a believer. He didn't follow him right away and give his life to him till much later. But this passage mirrors Jesus' own teaching. Now, one of the goals that he has is not growth. And many times we look at James and we think, oh, it's all about spiritual growth. That's, that's, that's what he wants. No, no, no. You see, growth is not the goal. Spiritual maturity is the goal. And there is a difference. We live in the day and age where people think growth is good. I once had a growth on my arm that the doctors needed to remove. Not all growth is good. Some of you have a growth and you like to show it off at parties and it's gross. We don't want to see it. 
but it's, it's knowing that not all growth is good. And today we just think bigger is better, but not always. Sometimes quantity does not beat quality. Sometimes, not all the time. Hometown buffet, I'm sorry. It, yeah, you get quantity, you don't get quality. And sometimes it's just better to go eat somewhere else. But here in this scripture, what he is trying to get you and I to see is that it's about spiritual maturity. What he wants for Christians is to be spiritually mature, that there is a work that's happening inside of us. And so maturity, get this, is a process, not a performance. Now, why do we need to say that? Because if we've grown up in the church, I'm a pastor's kid, I've grown up in it. I didn't get saved till I was 14. But before I was 14, I had already preached a message. I was leading, we called it junior church. It was basically if you were between the ages of third to fifth grade, you didn't want to be in the main service, you'd go to what they called junior church, and they would have like teenagers from the youth group preach over there. So I was already doing that. I was already serving in ministry. There was a lot I was already doing, and I was not a Christian. I was not saved. Because why? I knew the performance. I knew to bring a Bible or have it downloaded on my tablet or my phone. I knew how to look. I wore a suit and tie. That was the kind of church we went to, a suit and tie. I knew to wear a suit and tie. I knew that, hey, Sundays you don't cuss. That's just, you just don't, you know. You, you cuss outside of church, but not inside of church, you know. I, I knew that there were certain things we didn't talk about. I knew there were certain things that we wouldn't do. I knew how to perform. And sadly, many of us know the same. We know how to perform so that people would be deceived into thinking that we are Christians when we're really not. So spiritual maturity is a process of growth. It's not something we perform. It's something he wants to happen. But here's another teaching. And this is what my mentor, Hal, keeps telling me. That people are acorns, not oak trees. That it takes time for people to develop. And we need to give people time. And we need to give ourselves time. You see, an oak tree started out as a seed, seedling, before it became a sturdy tree. There was a process involved. But we live in a day and age where we don't want to wait for the process. If the relationship doesn't get better like that after one counseling session, we're done. If the boss doesn't do everything I want after that first interaction, ah, I'm out. If I don't like what's going on in this relationship, I'll go find another one. If I don't like what's happening in my city, I'll go find somewhere else. We never know how to stay in a place and work through the process with anything. We just, we just leave. I know people that if life gets too difficult or a project gets too hard, they're done. They walk away. They'll say, oh, I just needed some personal time. Excuse me, what? No, no, that's a cop-out from the process of growth because we bought into the lie that if everything takes effort, that somehow effort is bad. That if I have to put in effort, it means I'm not special. And I'm special. My parents told me I was special. I'm a snowflake. And so everything's got to be easy and effortless because that's what all that looks like for my heroes. It looks so effortless. You know, I'm amazed at how we have made a market of making everything look easy. Even the Instagram people that you follow, you know they're not using that, that cell phone camera that you're using. You know they have a hired photographer. They take that photo, drop it into Adobe After Effects and Photoshop, and they doctor that photo up, and they take those photos, and those are the ones they clip onto Instagram, and they act, oh, just, you know, woke up like this. No, you did not. And no, that photographer didn't just wake up and just magically appear. And we don't understand that. We don't understand. We want this instant gratification. We want this instant growth. And we want this instant, everything just happened. And we don't understand that God wants you to go through the process of maturing and a process of growth. There's something unnatural about trying to rush growth. 
I've got three kids. None of them are of driving age. Although, I'll sit them on my lap and I'll teach them how to drive. But I don't hand them the keys and say, hey, go get dad and mom some milk. No, that's rushing growth. It's going to get them into trouble. And you and I as Christians are like, God, let me just get out ahead of you. And instead of saying, no, God, let me, let's work out this process. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Understand, there's a difference between growing old and growing up. Because you and I have met 30 and 40-year-olds that are man-children or women-children. They're older, but they haven't grown older. There's no maturity there. They're the people that want to bring their parents to the job interview. Have you seen that? It's crazy. You're looking at people that you're saying, you are older, but you have not matured. There is no maturity there. And now we look at the church, and even in the church, we don't have any maturity. This is why people are so easily offended in church. Have you noticed that? People just easily bothered by things. Oh, don't do anything to offend us. Scripture says this, great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. That's the Bible, y'all. That's in the book. But we live in the most offended generation ever. Everybody's offended. I will have conversations with other people at a restaurant with just the person I'm sitting down having a meal with. And somebody else next to me will overhear the conversation and then get offended. And I'm not even talking about anything that's vulgar, anything that's bad. I'm just having a conversation and they may get upset with who I spoke that I think they're okay. Or I think this is all right. Or I'm going to vote for this person and this is the way I see the world. They'll get offended and you're like, wait a minute. You can't take offense when I didn't offer it. But yet, we're good at picking up offense today, aren't we? I know. It's quiet. It's Labor Day. We're tired. It's all good. Why is this so important? Growth is not the goal of spiritual maturity. is Maturity is a process, not a performance. With that very long introduction, James chapter number one. Notice the first word. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop there just for a moment. Hold on. That will preach just that little section. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop. Bondservant. That's a strong word. It's the Greek word doulos. Doulos means slave. Slave has that connotation that you're thinking. It is an awful word, a horrible word, that James considered himself a piece of somebody else's property. Something that he said, this is something that I have no value. I have no control over myself. I am totally somebody else's property. That's what James is saying. But he takes it a step farther. He says, not only does God own me, but the Lord Jesus Christ, his half-brother. How many grew up with siblings? Let me see your hands. Grew up with siblings? How many only children out there? Only children? Oh, okay, all right. Only children? You can go in the lobby, have coffee. This does not apply to you. You're good. But if you grew up with siblings, you get this. Your brother and your sister, they know you're not God. Now, if you're an only child, you, you probably were. You're like, no, I'm actually really good. I, I, I'm, pro, I'm probably good. The first service, we had three only children. This service, we only got one. And it's like, you know, they, they, they don't have it. So imagine James. He's like, I don't think my brother's God. But now what is he saying? He's saying, hey, you know what? I'll do anything that my brother asked me to do. That's how you know that this man has had a change. And he says, James, a bondservant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And then verse number two, he says this, count it all joy. And we like that. 
except for the last half, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea and tossed by the wind. For let that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unable, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and the beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this word. I pray that you would take this message as we dive into this book. I pray that it would bury deep into our hearts. I pray that your word would come alive in our midst. I pray that it would help us and encourage us. And help us to see that growth is not the goal, but spiritual maturity is the goal. Help us to grow closer in that knowledge. Help us to see you this morning. And help us, God, as a mature Christian. Help us, Father. We need it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Growth is not the goal spiritual maturity is, but what does God use to help us to become spiritually mature? And I'm going to give you the three points right off the bat. First of all, God is going to use transition in your life. Secondly, he's going to use trials And third, he'll use temptation. These are the three things that we're going to see in the next couple verses that God uses to help you and I grow spiritually mature. In verse number one, he's writing, he says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. What is he saying? Persecution had come to that early church. The church took off. Day of Pentecost, you see 3,000 people saved and baptized. You see just a few days later, another 3,000, and then 5,000. And you just see explosive growth. They estimate that over 100,000 Christians were in Jerusalem at that time. And then you had a man by the name of Saul bring persecution, whose name is later changed to Paul because he's saved on the road to Emmaus. And he brought this persecution that scatters the church. But James, the first church... The pastor, he's got a shepherd's heart, so he wants to make sure they have the encouragement they need. So he is talking to this scattered people. There's transition. Now, understand, when you and I go through transition, it's not often pleasant. I'm very much like, I want my routines, I want my habits, and if you mess that up, it's like, oh, I don't always do well with transition. It's not always easy. It's not easy to adjust. It was like, hey, you have your first kid, you're like, okay, all right, we got one. And it's uh, my wife and I, it's like, hey, it's two on one. We can do this. All right, we can, we can, we can do it. And then you have your second. You're like, okay, it's, it's man-to-man defense. We, we, can, we still got this. And then the third one came along, and it's like, okay, we're splitting off into a zone defense now because we are outnumbered here, all right? And the inmates want to run the asylum, so we, we got to work together. But there's this transition, and it's hard, and it's difficult. But here's what I've noticed about transition. God uses transition to get my attention. God uses those times in my life where it seems like things aren't working how I thought they would. 
that there's difficulty, that in those moments of transition, I'm looking for the answers. Now, in moments of transition, oftentimes, you and I will look to get out of it. We're a people that we like comfort. Nothing wrong with comfort. But sometimes, in our quest for comfort, we try to get out of God's calling on our lives. And sometimes God says, no, I need you to stay in a place of transition that's difficult because there's a work that I'm doing. And it's the work that's not through you. It's actually in you. And it's work that nobody else can see and it's uncomfortable. But it's vital work that I've got to do. And so we see that God uses transition in our life. I'm going to give you a statement. I hope it'll be a help to you. To make profound changes in your life, you need two things, inspiration and desperation. If there's going to be profound change in your life, it's going to happen because of inspiration and desperation. Somebody gets in a lot of debt, all of a sudden, when the debt gets high enough, now they're desperate. Okay, I'll get the second job. Okay, we got to cut back. Okay, got to limit spending. Okay, we got to cut some things out that we used to do. Because why? There is now desperation in the mix, and now you're changing. I see oftentimes when people go through transition that there's a desperation factor. I'll see people when they're going through uh, marital troubles, they'll end up coming back to God. You'll see people that when they have their children, they'll come back to God, or there's a loss, they'll come back to God. Because God doesn't orchestrate and He doesn't want to see the transition, although He uses the transition. God uses it to help build you and I, to help form something inside of us. And it's difficult, but God is producing something. And in verse number two, it says, my brethren, count all joy when you fall into various trials. You see, he uses transition, and then he uses the trials in our life. But he uses a funny word, count it all joy when you fall into the trials. I don't know about you, but I have not arrived at that point in my spiritual life when I get a flat tire, a large bill, or in a car accident that I jump up and say, praise the Lord, this is so exciting. If anything, that's the last words, although they should be the first. But isn't it interesting? He says, count it all joy. It's ex- he's excited because he's like, something good's going to happen. God's about to do something. You see, and that's what he wants you and I to understand, is that he's about to work. Get excited about what this is going to do in your life. That there's something difficult. There's something you can't control. And so you just step back and say, okay, God, take the wheel. I, this is bigger than me. We're going through a lot as a church, and it's exciting, but it's also over my head that it's like, all right, God, you have to do this because I don't know how to build this building. I don't know how to do all this, but I'm going to get the right team, and they're going to do this, and I know there's going to be a whole lot of hang-ups, a whole lot of hold-ups, but God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to follow you. You're going to do something in this situation. So God's going to use the transition. God's going to use those trials, and so he says, count it all joy, and then he says, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces Patience. One person has told me, never pray for patience. Anybody ever told you that? Never pray for patience. I really think I know what they're saying, but it's really foolish what they're saying. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and we want to produce fruit. But that word patience doesn't mean what you think it means. Once again, a princess bride reference. I don't think that word means what you think it means. And here, patience... It means to bear under the weight. Any of you ever done a plank before? You know what planking means, where you just hold a position, and then your core heats up, 
and then your arms start to shake, your legs start to shake, and then beads of sweat begin to pour down your face because you're planking. And then you look at the clock and you're like, did it go backwards or did it even move? You, you can't tell because you're in that plank position. And time seems to just stop when you're planking. And then what's worse, the gym I go to, you're in that plank position, then they take a 20-pound weight and they put it on your back. And you're like, ah, <laughs> if I could throw this plate at you, I would. And it's, that's the term that he's using. It's to bear up under the weight. It's to stay up under it. It's that weight is producing strength in you. It's producing something that there's no other way that you could produce that in your life. You see, there is something that you and I, we would say, God, why can't you produce patience by letting me win the lottery, giving me a job promotion, allowing everything to be perfect with my marriage and with my children? God, can I grow that way? And God's like, nope, you can't. But I'm going to use transition and trials. And I'm going to develop something in you. And so it's in the trials that we say, okay, God, Lord, you've got to teach me. Lord, help me to be sensitive to you. And so we've got to cooperate with God in the process. Because oftentimes we resist what God is doing. That we are fighting against it. Because we're the generation that wants the easy out button. That we're just like, no, 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 I want it easy. And if it's too hard, I'm giving up. And if it's not working out right away, I'm not going to keep at it. I wonder if we would have a light bulb today because I don't know if we have the perseverance anymore in our generation. It just doesn't seem like anybody has enough patience to fail 1,000 times. It just seems to me that I meet somebody and they give up on a problem, they give up on a relationship, they give up on a job, they give up so fast nowadays. It's like we've lost the art of patience, to endure under the pressure, to say, God, this is from you. You're allowing it, so I'm going to stay up under it. And so, God, I'm going to cooperate with your process. This is your process. I see it from you, so I'm going to cooperate with it. Also, you know what this process does? It brings closeness. This process does bring a closeness between you and God because you've got to depend on somebody else for the strength. You've got to say, okay, God, Lord, I can't do this, so you've got to come in and you've got to help me. You've got to give me the strength that I lack in this situation. I sometimes will have to discipline my children. And when discipline's been administered properly, you'll find that there's a closeness there. You'll find there's a closeness. Uh, too often, we try to push back. And some of my kids, they'll do some funny things. Maybe your kids do the same. I found one of my sons was yelling at my wife, and I... I got really upset that he was yelling at my wife. And I was like, you do not yell. And then he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, but she can't hear me. And I was like, you're two feet away. Doesn't justify your yelling. Second later, hits his brother. He's like, oh, you don't hit your brother. Hey, he didn't hurt. It didn't hurt him. He's fine. I was like, my goodness, what, what is going on with this child? And it just seems like that's how we can be. We can come up with all these justifications, all these excuses as to why We get to do what we want to instead of understanding that God is saying, no, let me work out this process. Let me work this out. And you say, but I still don't know what to do. This is difficult. This trial is hard. You know what he does in verse number five? He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. You don't know what to do in this trial? God says, then ask me for the help. Ask me for the wisdom. And you know, if we would have asked God for wisdom last week or a month ago, we probably wouldn't be in this mess. Because I would have the wisdom I need to avoid it. I would have the wisdom I need to fix it. 
And you and I need to start asking God, Lord, give me the wisdom. And he makes a promise in the scripture. He says, and he gives to all men liberally. He'll give it to you. Do you have a financial crisis? Ask God for wisdom specifically for your finances. You have a, a leadership crisis? Ask God to give you wisdom in better leadership. You've got a marriage crisis? Ask God, give me wisdom in my marriage. You've got a work crisis? Say, God, give me wisdom. And God says, I'll give you that wisdom. But you know what's amazing? We don't pray for wisdom anymore. We don't. We pray for it. God, just fix it. And God's like, that's not going to help you grow. Do you understand that? That when there's difficulty and when you learn how to navigate the difficulty, that's when there's maturity happening. But if somebody just fixes the problem for you, you didn't learn anything. I can do my fifth grader's math. I was going to say Megan's math and I was like, "Hmm, maybe not. But I can do my fifth grader's math. No problem. Austin could set his homework down. I could slide it over. Five minutes we could do it. I would save him an hour. And I could say, well, aren't I a good parent? I just did his homework. That's an extra hour he gets to watch TV and play video games. He would think I'm a good parent, wouldn't he? Yeah, he would be like, my dad's the best. He does my homework, gives me extra video game time, extra time to watch TV. But a few years from now, he would realize I was actually a very terrible parent because he never learned the steps to work out the math problem. And your God is too good of a God to let you not figure it out. And he's right there. And so we pray for wisdom. We say, God, give me the wisdom. This is hard. And God says, I know it's hard. But God says, I'll give you that wisdom. And yet today in the church, we don't ask God for the help that he's saying, I really want to give it. Because I want you to learn how to get along with people. I want you to learn how to have a great marriage. I want you to learn how to see the church develop and grow. I want you to learn how to mature spiritually. And it happens when you and I pray and we say, God, give me wisdom, Lord. Proverbs even says this about wisdom. With all your getting, get wisdom. With anything you ask. And then it goes on to say, for wisdom, it's price is far above rubies. It's saying, hey, it's more precious than rubies. It's more precious than jewels. It's to have wisdom. But what's the last thing we pray for? We rarely pray for wisdom. Once, I can't remember the last time somebody came up to me and said, hey, pastor, pray for me. And I say, what can I pray for? And they say, pray that I'd have more wisdom. I don't know if I've ever had anybody ask me to pray for that. But yet, what does scripture say right here? He's saying, hey, if any of you lack it, which if we have problems, it's because we lack wisdom. We lack the knowledge how to deal with the problem. Or we're a little bit apathetic and we just, we just deal with it. We just manage. I don't want to go through life just getting by. And I would hate to see you just going through life just trying to get by. I want you and I to say, see God working and doing a great work. And wisdom will help us win. Thirdly and finally, temptation. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. You know, sometimes when we're tempted, we tend to blame God. We tend to say, God, why did you keep that temptation from me? First, you forget that he allowed his own son, Jesus, to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights while fasting. While he had no strength, he allowed him to be tempted. So you and I were saying, God, keep me back from that temptation. No, he wants you and I to learn how to stay no to temptation. Some of us are like, God, just take it away. Just take it away. 
God is trying to develop inside of us a maturity to say, no, I don't need it. So stop blaming God with, because he is not the source of the temptation. It's clear in the text. And yet he uses temptation. It grows us. You see, temptation is something that allures us. And you and I, we need to get allergic to what allures us. We need to have an allergic reaction. Say, no, I want to stay away from that. But isn't it amazing today how we just pull temptation in close? It's like we actually kind of want our temptation. You know, there's a lot of people who struggle with alcoholism. And you will find that they always need to have a little bit of a buzz wherever they go. They always just need a little bit in their system. And they don't like it when they don't have that buzzed feeling. And they need just a little bit. So imagine this is some type of sin. They want to keep just enough, just kind of close. They got to have it. They don't want enough so anybody knows, but just, just enough. I feel like we do the same with sin. We want just enough so we don't feel too bad, but then we, we like that feeling that it's just within reach. We don't totally want to cut it off from ourselves. But let me ask you this. Let's say somebody came into your home, you're gone on a business trip, murders your wife and your children, and then you come back to the mess and the horror and the carnage. And then you want to become that guy's best friend. How sick and wrong would you be? You'd, you wouldn't want to be their best friend. You'd want nothing to do with the person that came in and did that unspeakable act to your child and to your spouse. Our sin nailed our Savior to the cross. Our sin did that. And when you and I do not resist the temptation, when we say we want to be buddies with it, we are saying we want to be friends with the very thing that did that horrible, unspeakable atrocity. But how many Christians really won't keep it at arm's distance? Later on in James, he'll say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. God is trying to get you and I to understand that sin is always going to be around. But you do not have to be drawn into it. And the more you say no, the more you resist, the easier it gets to say no and the easier it gets to resist. That's how it works. And you and I have to develop the ability to be able to say no to sin because guess what? Sin is not going away. It's not. I wish I could protect my kids from how much sin is readily available. I can't let them have the Disney app on their iPads anymore because of what's going to get on that. And it's Disney. And we used to think Disney, that's okay. I don't really have to worry about it. Not anymore. Not anymore. The stuff I've seen on there, I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. Kids can get access to this? No. And we've got to push away. So sin is not going away. The only thing I can do is say, you know what? I know how to say no to that. And I know what it's going to do. And it's clear in the scripture. He says, hey, sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Sin's going to have a baby, and that baby's called death. It will destroy you. It will kill, which is exactly the enemy's plan in John 10. For the enemy has one desire, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his desire, and that's what sin does. So you and I are fooling ourselves thinking we can be close to it. There's an ancient Indian proverb where a Native American was about to um, uh, go on his his journey, uh, and he was hiking up a mountain. 
And he get up really high above the tree line. And there he found a rattlesnake. Now, this is a Native American proverb. And so the, the snake told him and said, please, I will freeze and die up here. Please carry me down the mountain so I don't die. I'm about to freeze. And the Native American said, no, you, you, you're a rattlesnake. You're going to bite me. No, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And the snake said, no, 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 I, I promise I won't bite you. And the Native American young man said, you promise? And the snake said, yes, I promise. So he picks it up. And as they're walking down the mountain, the snake says, it's still cold. Would you put me into your jacket and in underneath your shirt where I can get warm next to your skin because I'm freezing? And he said, no, you'll bite me. I'm not going to do that. He said, no, I promise I won't bite you. Okay, if you promise, it puts him warm next to his skin. And just as they got down to where it was warm, the snake bites the boy. And as the boy was dying from the venom, looked at the snake one last time and said, why did you bite me? You promised me. And the snake said, I'm a poisonous snake. It's my nature to bite. You knew what I was when you picked me up. I know what this is when I pick it up. I want nothing to do with it. And God is trying to help you and I because sin's not going away, friend. You can move to the most conservative, religious part of this country, you will still find sin. We saw it. West Virginia, the most conservative, rural part of Americana that you can find, and what atrocities were happening in those schools that made national headlines. You and I think, if I just live in some more rural, more place, just hide, just hide. That was never God's plan. It was never God's plan for the children to hide. He said, we are a city set on a hill that gives light to everybody. That's what the church of God is. So you and I have to be able to build our spiritual maturity where we say, that is sin, I don't need it, and I know how to stay away from it. I know that's so basic, I don't mean to talk down to you, but how many of us, we don't have that lesson down? We get the tension, we get the trials, but temptation, we kind of like it, if we're honest. We, we want it to be our friend. We're kind of like that drunk. We've got to have a buzz. Yeah, I may not get so blackout drunk anymore, but i got to have a little bit. I want to know where it's at. I don't want to cut it off completely. I want to know I could always have a good time. And so we always just have it there. What that is actually called is idolatry. And you've made that thing more important than God. When God says that'll kill you, and you say, I really don't care if it will. When we know this thing will destroy us, but we bring it closer, and God says, get as far away from it as we possibly can. And that is spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would help us. Lord, we need your help. We live in a day and age where it is hard to be spiritually mature. It seems like it's easy to just kind of live in spiritual infancy where we don't have to really grow up, where we could just find a community of people that allow us to stay spiritually immature. But you have called us beyond the milk of the word to the meat, to be spiritually mature, which leads to spiritual discernment, which the discernment will help us to choose and make different decisions, God. And if there's anything that's lacking today, it seems like discernment is lacking. And so, Father, help us. Help us, Father. I thank you for the truths that are found in your word. I pray that you would guide us. I pray that you would speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Can we all stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? I'd like to ask the worship team to lead us in one final song. If you need prayer, if I can pray with you, I'll be down here at the front. You feel free to slip out. But in the meantime, let's sing and worship together. Thank you again for spending time with us today. And a special thanks to those who give generously to Southridge Church. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about Southridge, you can follow us on social media at Southridge Now. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe or share it with a friend or even take a screenshot and share it on your social story. Make sure you tag Southridge Church and let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.